Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. So you've heard of life coaching, but have you heard of health coaching? A little over a year ago, I had no idea that the field existed or how supportive I would find it to be in my own life. And while this podcast has created incredibly fulfilling work for me as a Spoonie, I wanted to do something more tangible to support this community in addition to the ongoing discussions I host on the show. So I spent all of last year training as an integrative nutrition health coach and taking adjunct courses in functional medicine approaches to autoimmune healing. I'm now able to take this work off the air and into your life, helping you work toward transformation from surviving to thriving. Using my in-depth knowledge of lifestyle, nutrition, stress management, personal advocacy, personal experience, and more, I'm now able to work as your guide on the side, giving you the added support you need as you navigate industrialized medicine in your own search for healing. I'm offering individual coaching with group courses soon to come. If you're interested in learning more about health coaching and how I can support you, head over to calendly.com slash uninvisible to book a free 30-minute intake session. I'm so excited to connect personally with more members of this community and help you control the things you can control while working in harmony with your medical team and individual needs. Again, that's calendly.com slash uninvisible. Sign up now for your free 30-minute intake sesh. I can't wait to learn more about you. Please note that this episode contains a number of expletives and discussion of sex and sexuality. Listen with caution if you have minors around and prepare to be wowed. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with a guest that we have been waiting to chat to for quite a while, and I'm so thrilled to have him on today. We are talking to Andrew Gerza. Andrew is a disability awareness consultant, the award-winning host of the podcast Disability After Dark, the co-founder of Bumpin', the world's first disability-driven sex toy. I know. I'm excited, just like you are. (laughs) And... (laughs) Personally, my favorite intersectional disability tweeter. So we're going to get into all of it. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yay. Thank you for having me. And thank you for, we, it took us so long to prep this. So let's, I mean, I'm like, <laughs> I am too. This, is, But you know, that's just the world of very busy and important people like us. Yeah. Very busy, <laughs> super disabled, super chronically ill humans. I get it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, this is what I love about talking to people like you. Um, I mean, you're so open with so many of your experiences and asking other people about their experiences on your show. And, um, you know, I'm so excited to like get into 
the nitty gritty on, on a lot of this stuff, especially, yeah, especially where it comes to like disability, sexuality, and identity, which is a big part of your platform. So in order to sort of give everyone the background, can we get started? Can you tell us when and how you first got diagnosed and how you've managed your health since diagnosis and how all of that has looked? I know lately it's been kind of difficult. Yeah, I mean, I was diagnosed with my initial disabilities, cerebral palsy, when I was one and a half. So way back in like 1985, I remember my mom telling me that when I was born, I was blue. Uh, when mm. I was born, I almost died a couple times. Fun, wow. fun. Fun, super uh, fun. Yeah, really fun for her at 31, trying to like figure out why my, why your kid is coding. Like what's, what, what? Like so, yeah. she, you know, I, I was born, I live in Toronto now, but I was born in California. So my mom went down for the 1984 Olympics to go party with people and her with her with my dad um i decided that it was time for me to just come i was like oh it's warm i'm coming out yeah great yeah so good timing they didn't you know it was 84 so they didn't have a lot of they didn't understand cp they didn't really have a lot of like knowledge around what it was because it was 84 um but i remember her saying that when i was in the isolate in the incubator i was pulling out my tubes and being basically like fuck you i'm gonna survive like i'm not going anywhere that tracks that tracks yeah yeah i mean she she was like you she was like you fought through so much stuff to be here like and i know that sounds inspiration porny but it's true it's what i did to to be here so like um i always love that story because like it shows that i wanted to be here and i had a purpose to be here and then you know, as I as I got older, like like CP was the one that I kind of was my main disability. But as I kind of have grown into adulthood, I have issues with chronic constipation, issues with IBS and diarrhea, and issues with like, yeah, IBS is my latest chronic joy that I'm dealing with. Um, yeah, that super kind of, fun one. Yeah, it's so great. It kind of sprung up on me about five years ago. I um, got really sick with Seal. Because my doctor had given me too much antibiotic, mm. and I got really sick, and I was in the hospital for a week. And they were like, "Oh, you're gonna have IBS the rest of your life. That's luck." And I was like, "Wow, Great. cool, awesome." And so for the the last four years of me having it, my doctor knew and I knew, but I didn't want to take drugs because I was like, I don't want the drugs to fuck me up more. I don't want to do drugs. I want to just try to be as natural as possible. But over the, I would say that about six months ago, back in like. October, November, I got really, really sick again. I had a flare up where I was having diarrhea like probably two or three times a day. And I was just mm. so unhappy and so uncomfortable. So I finally one day phoned my doctor crying in tears and was mm. like, okay, give me the drugs, whatever the drugs are. I want them. Right. What are the drugs? And she was like, well, let's try this. So for the last six months, I've been on a, a, a regimented uh, diet of, of antidepressants to try to figure out how to not because, not necessarily because I'm depressed, but because, well, I was because of the IBS, but yeah, mainly to, to see if the the tricyclics would fix the IBS problem. And I'm I'm happy to say that while they don't fix everything, hmm. they fix a lot of it. So over the last six months, I've been I've had less diarrhea, I've had less pain. It's not a it's not a cure all, but it's certainly hmm. something that's worked for me. And it sounds like maybe also improved your mood along with I mean, all of it. So much, well, so much better because like, you know, people don't realize when you have 
when you have a chronic illness like this, um, and you also have disabilities on top of that, which mean like I am what they refer to as severely disabled, which means I see it as severely sexy, but they call it mm. severely. But you know, yeah, well, I mean, there are a lot of things we're going to talk about that are sexy. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, might as well so, get into it. So the doctors call it severely disabled, which basically means that I need help with everything in my daily my daily living. So getting up, having a shower, using the toilet, eating, brushing my teeth, scratching my back. I need help with basically everything. And so because of that, if you have a disability, if you have a chronic illness, that also means you shit yourself. Like if if you eat something bad or you right. laugh, like sometimes if I laugh too hard, I'll poo. So like, you yeah. know, so having all that. Means- I have the, I have the opposite. Like if I laugh too hard, sometimes I pee, but that's, you know, a pelvic Amazing. floor problem. Me too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I have all the same issues. So I get it. Um, so, but you know, when you have that and you're trying to promote sexuality and queerness and how hot you are, it can be really hard to do my job. When I'm like, I don't know if I feel sexy today because my gut hurts. Who's going to want to fuck me because I'm shitting myself? Like, how do I, mm. how can I be sexy when this is happening to me? So for those from, I would say from like September through to like November of this last year, I was so depressed because I was like, we're going through a pandemic, basically hadn't had sex in two plus years, hadn't yeah. seen, like I, I employ sex workers to have my needs met. Hadn't mm. seen my primary sex worker in two years. We talked wow. all the time, but we couldn't fuck because of the pandemic. We wanted to protect each other. So and then, and then my body flared up. So I was like, great. Mm. Like, when do I get to go back to myself again? Because I was able to see him probably twice a month before the pandemic. And like, I really value that time because we would, I got to be sensual. I got to be sexy. I got to be who I am inside. So not to have, to have that now for two years and then to have your body be like, guess what? Because of your nerves, we're going to make you shit yourself. It's like, oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So there was a lot going on. And so being able to, I just started seeing him again and we just started Hooray! doing, it was, it's been so nice because he's such a gentleman. Like we're, we're good friends. We really like, that's great. We really are friends on top of, the work we do together. And I had him over for a couple of sleepovers, which was really nice because I got to just be with him as a person. And we didn't have, we weren't, we weren't like staring at the clock being, okay, we have to do this. We, have to, we only have, right. this. Like it was a nice seven hours of like, Hey, want to watch a movie and maybe pull around after like, cool. Great. So like, that's been nice, but to not have that for two plus years and then have a body that's doesn't want to work. It makes, it makes the work I do as a sexual, as a sexuality educator and a disability educator really hard because we're not talking about sex when you can't or sex when you want to, but your body says no. We're not really having that conversation anywhere on the internet. And I feel like disability discourse, in my opinion, is so far behind where it should be. Yeah. Um, I think disability educators and I, I say, I say that any, any, disability educator can do whatever they need to do for themselves. But I feel like we're stuck in an echo chamber of saying everyone else is an ableist and I'm the rightist and I'm wrong because, or, and I'm upset because you said this thing wrong. Mm. And it's like, okay, well that's nice, but it's so much more nuanced than that. So on my platforms, like I like to go underneath all that stuff. And rather than shaming somebody 
and saying you're a fucking ableist. Like, fuck you for being an ableist. Like, well, that's, I think, a valid feeling to have. I also think that's not going to move us for, further along. And that's I right. reached a point in my activism journey where I was like, this shit's going to make me sick. If I push away every able-bodied person that wants to help me by calling them an ableist, I'm only perpetuating the problem. This is a beautiful segue into so much of the conversation I want to have with you. There's a few things I want to highlight about everything that you've just been saying. Number one, this idea that there's so much about disability that we don't talk about that is sort of under wraps, hence the title Disability After Dark, you know, hence being on a show like Uninvisible, right? And, you know, that you are so open about what those experiences look like for you and how you are accessing sexuality in ways that work for you, but also um, openly having those conversations with people, as you say, who maybe aren't on the same page because that's the only way we're going to move the needle. Yeah. Um, But also this idea of sexuality. I mean, obviously you're in Canada, right? And I'm in the States and it's like, we live in very puritanical societies, you know, with origins that are not super sexuality friendly, (laughs) let alone disability friendly. Right. So it's what I love about what you're saying and about feeling sexy is about it starting with you, not about being sexy for someone else, but about feeling sexy for yourself, which I think is something that we often jump over in our conversations about sexuality, no matter what our level of ability. Yeah, completely. And I, I jump over it a lot for myself right now. Like I, I think that, like I think, I want to be sexy for someone else because I've never gotten to have that gaze from somebody. Like I'm, I'm like, people don't often say to me, "Hey Andrew, you're sexy." Like it doesn't happen very often, especially in the community. Hey Andrew, you're sexy. Oh, thank you. But it doesn't happen in the communities that I like that I seek out sexual partners. So like, I'm a queer cis. Well, I, well, I'm not binary. I'm identified as, I'm a cis male, um, person. And so I, you know, in those, in the cis male queer community, because I'm disabled, I'm not read as sexually liable. So I don't get that very often. So I do like to be sexy for someone else because that having them gaze on me like sexually is hot. It's really fun. So like I found that going on the apps and dating conventionally or trying to date conventionally was damn near impossible so about five years ago i was like fuck don't have a lot of money but i have enough to get a blowjob how do i like how do i <laughs> can i quote I, you on that <laughs> yeah yeah exactly please do uh <laughs> don't have a lot of money but i have enough to get a blowjob and i started l- looking into how do i hire a sex worker because i hadn't had sex in almost a year at that point i was depressed I was upset. I was like, I I want this queer maleness that I keep seeing everywhere. I want to be a part of that. And if I can't get it the normal way, normal way, whatever that means, um, I'm putting it in giant air quotes, um, whatever that means, I want to do it in whatever way possible. So I went on a gay male sex escort site. Not going to say who it is because who knows if. Well, everyone can find their own out there. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. I went on the site and I, I found the worker that I work with now. And it was really cool because I asked him in our, in our first chat, I said, have you ever been with a disabled person before? He said, no. And I was like, that's hot because 
I get to teach you now mm. how to navigate my body. And there's something really central about that. And we've been seeing each other now and we've been friends for the last five years. Um, and it's been really so what, what he's provided for me is really valuable, but also I think what I provided for him in teaching him to navigate a disabled body, teaching him about disability, um, letting him ask questions about my body that he might be curious about giving him pointers to how to work with other disabled clients. Like there's a, a real symbiosis in our working relationship. And I really, really value that. I think that's so gorgeous. And that he's been so open as well to learn, you know, and, and this is so central to these conversations too. It's like, if you're going to be in any kind of relationship with somebody who is disabled, um, you know, being able to ask questions and being in an environment where that's encouraged. Right. And I, I think this is something in disability discourse that we have to get better at. I feel like quote disability activists end quote, like to say, you can't ask me that. How dare you? Like, right. and I, I come back on in the other end and go, why not? Who's it hurting? Why don't you want to use your platform for education? Like I, I have, I have, I think a different view than the leading like disability activists out there. I don't think every able-bodied person is a bad person. I don't think that ableism is, I don't think ableism makes you a bad person. I think that it's just a growing point that you have to grow past. And I wish that we could have that conversation in disability space, but apparently we're not allowed because I've tried and I've been shut down for it. So apparently we're not allowed to talk about that, but that's, (laughs) that's how I feel about it. I feel like, the disability community needs to be unified more mm. and stop infighting. And I feel like we're not doing that enough. I think that's a really good point. And it's something that I've instinctively probably leaned more into in the way that you do um, and and have silently struggled and, and really struggled to put words to uh, a lot of the conversations I see happening in the disability community where, as you say, that discourse is shut down before it can even begin. And I agree. I think this idea of ableism, the concept of ableism, and when we come across people who perhaps are exhibiting ableism, you know, a lot of that comes just from ignorance. And if we use that as an opportunity to educate, right? Um, but it's also an energetic thing, if we have the energy to educate, um, you know, and, and how much of the push and pull, right. Needs to be us making the effort to make ourselves seen and heard and how much needs to be other people seeking that information too. So it has to come from both sides. Yeah. And I don't, I I don't think it's a very symbiotic relationship right now. I think we're still stuck in this like early nineties idea of how dare you say that about a disabled person? Like, Mm. and my thinking is, why aren't we addressing ableism together? Why aren't we sitting these people in a room and being like, cool, so that thing you said might be considered ableist. Do you know what ableism means, first of all? Mm-hmm. And secondly, like, why do you think why did you think it was okay to say that? Just without judgment, without like shaming you, tell me why. And we're not doing that. And I, I get really tired of disability activism that is pointed like a knife that's going to stab you in the heart if you say a wrong thing. I don't want to do that. I want to bring people into the experience, even if stuff they said hurts me. And believe me, people have said ableist things to me that are really, I don't super like, but I, but I understand they're learning. And if I can use my platform to educate, I always say this, it's never my responsibility, but it is always my opportunity. So if I, if I wanted to, 
And if I have the energy and the spoons and all that stuff, I can educate you. If, however, I'm having a bad day or I'm, I'm running or something, like, or I'm having an IBS attack, maybe I won't be as like gentle with my education. But mm-hmm. I always try to be like, okay, let's let's talk it through. I think where I struggle is, especially during this pandemic, where I've been struggling is like, wow, your ableism is just you don't care. Like you yeah. just don't care. I, I think that's been a really big point of contention in the disability community and the chronic illness community throughout the whole pandemic. The way that our community has been ignored and displaced and just basically told that we're yeah, going to be sold yeah, down the river. Yeah. Or you're going to die and it's, you're okay with that, right? Like you're going right. to end up in a hospital that are probably dead. Are you, that's cool, right? Like that's where my problem, the problem is. But I think with all that stuff, I think we have degrees of ableism. And I think the problem with the disability community that I see is that every instance of ableism is like zero to 60 right away. There's no discussion of like, Oh, did you consider where they came from? Did you consider why they said that? Do you consider their background? Like the example of this I always give is my mom raised me in the eighties and nineties. And when she was learning how to manage me and how to like have a disabled child in her home, cause she went to classes and had to learn cause it was the eighties and nobody fucking knew what they were doing. So she, <laughs> that is so right. <laughs> yeah. And so like they told her that the language they used, the appropriate language at the time was person with special needs. Mm. So my mom's almost 70 now and she will still call me a person with special needs. And I could jump down her throat and be like, mom, that's not appropriate. And at one point, a couple of years ago, I did. And she stopped me and looked me dead in the face. And I remember we were sitting in some airport going somewhere. We were traveling together. And she called me a special needs person in front of somebody. And I was like, mom, that's not the language anymore. And she looked me dead in the face. She goes, did it hurt you? And I said, well, Mm -hmm. no. She goes, well, I wasn't trying to hurt you. I was just, that's that's what I was taught. And it Mm -hmm. kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. And I went, oh, we have to be acknowledging that too. Like, Mm -hmm. so I think when people... When, when disabled people stop and say, well, you have to call me this. It's like, okay, well, you can tell them what, what language you want them to use, of course, but also try to recognize where they came from first. And so that experience with my mom really kind of resonated with me to be like, I have to be aware of the context where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And so that really informs how I look at ableism now. Are you trying to hurt me? If you're not, okay, let's talk. If you're weaponizing this, like pointedly to make a point of hurting me that I'm probably not going to talk to you. But if we're just, if you're just trying to figure it out, why am I going to be an asshole to you? Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's no surprise to me that you're wearing a, some good news t-shirt. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's because I have a crush on John Krasinski. That's I mean, who me. does it? Hello. He's perfect. I, I ordered that shirt. Like as soon as that show launched, I was like, yep. And then I got mad when, when, he sold that and was like, I'm going to sell it to... And I was like, no! I know, we want you! <laughs> it needs to be yours forever! <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting, though, because to me, it tells me so much about the lens through which you are seeing all of these experiences, which is, you know, working to be inclusive, but also one that is really exuding a, a level of hope and, and joy and positivity in the sense that we can change some of these damaging narratives. I mean, I think that's what we're missing from in the disability narrative. Like, if I go on disability Twitter or disability Instagram right now, I could find you a hundred posts about 
so-and-so was a fucking A-list, ableism is blah, blah, blah. And maybe I wrote some of them a couple years ago. Who knows? But like my activism keeps changing because I'm like, I don't want to be mad. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to hurt somebody else by calling them out publicly on the internet. Like I've been called out on the internet before. It's not fun. It's really horrible. Mm. So like, I don't want to do that. I want to just meet somebody where they are. And for me, an educational platform, like the one that I built through disability after dark and through like the Instagram and Twitter that I have, it's fun to give people this knowledge and watch them go, Oh, I didn't think of it like this before. Hmm. Or, Oh, thank you for like, I have people who DM me all the time and say, you know, I read your posts every day and I follow you to learn stuff. And that's cool because I never thought this would be a big thing. So like to know that, you know, 20,000 people on Instagram follow what I say Hmm. is kind of cool. I mean, it's also scary because if you say the wrong thing, you're like, wow. But, you know, (laughs) that's why they have the delete button on Instagram. Thank goodness. Um, That's also, you're hoping that this audience will greet you with the same openness that you greet them and allow you space to learn. And it's a, it's a, it's a sad moment when you very quickly realize they don't greet you with the same openness that you greet them. Um, and I, I think I really wish the disability community would take a hard look at themselves and be like, we have some work to do because I think there's a lot of racism. There's a lot of sexism. There's a lot of ableism within the community. Um, and it breaks my heart because it's like, how are we going to, how are we going to move the needle forward if we don't critique ourselves? Yeah. I want to get more into that in a little bit, but I, I want to sort of circle back to, you, you've mentioned your mom a couple of times and, you know, I'm curious because you're someone, as you say, who's living with care, you know, people who are coming in and, and helping take care of you, which I know during the pandemic has been troublesome to say the oh, least. Oh, it's real fun. Real oh, fun. Yeah. And if anyone hasn't been following what Andrew's been experiencing, um, in a nutshell, do you want to tell us yeah. what's been happening? I mean, right now, knock on wood right now the care is pretty good right now in this moment as we're recording this the care i'm knocking on the forehead that is wood. Like, i've had showers for the last week in a row never Why? so it's pretty good it's pretty good right now but during certain points of the pandemic when the omicron was really raging they had put a mandate in our in the care home where i live that they had to stop showers for two weeks because if the attendant's got their masks wet from the steam of showering somebody, the particles could, this is literally what they told me, the particles could then seep into their lungs and hurt them. I don't know. It sounds really made up and sounds like it's not real at all, but okay, sure. So for 11 days, we couldn't shower. And then when the outbreak, when we thought it was done, they were like, ah, just kidding, five more days. And we were like, oh, okay. Mm. So then the trouble was that I couldn't get anybody over here to help me like my mom and dad live about an hour away so that they would come down no problem but my mom is almost 70 my dad's almost 60 like it's really hard for them to do my full care and also i'm almost i'm almost 38 i don't necessarily want my family to have to come down and shower me but at the same time i travel with my mom all the time she's my primary caregiver when i go traveling to do stuff like we just came back from Louisiana for a work thing that I can't talk about. It's all hush hush, but uh Uh-oh. yeah, well you you certainly tweeted a bit about it, but Yeah, I tweeted a bit about it, but it's still hush hush. Uh so we'll, like, we'll, we'll just say it's a it's a wheelchair safety issue when Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So um you know, she's is my primary caregiver when we do stuff like that. And 
I love having her as my primary caregiver, but at the same time, I'm 38. I don't, I want the autonomy of like, no, I'll get somebody to do that for me, mom. Don't worry about it. You don't have to. But at the same time, her care is better than any attendant care that I'll ever receive because she's my mom. So as she gets older, I think about what's going to happen when she's not there anymore. Like I, I, I'm starting to not consciously, but it is in the back of my mind of like when my mom passes or my dad passes and I'm 50 and I'm having these moments where I can't get somebody to run over. What do I do? How am I going to, how will I do all that? So um, it is something I think about a a fair bit. Yeah. And are are you, you have a sister, don't you? I do. Yes. Yeah. So is your sister involved in your care and advocacy too? She she lives in Australia, so she can't be involved so much in oh, the man. physical part of care. But when she was visiting, she visited for Christmas, uh, 2021. And when she was visiting, I taught her how to do my catheter and a little bit of my care. And, you know, again, it's an awkward thing to be like, hey, you want to shove this catheter up my dick? Right. Sister, sister? <laughs> like, it's, it's Love awkward. Love you, but, really? <laughs> yeah. But, like, you know, I, I also take pride in teaching them because that way, if I want to go and stay over a night at my mom's house or I want to go somewhere with my extended family. And if I teach them, then I don't have to worry anymore. Then there's someone that knows how to help me. And that takes a a lot of the pressure off. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because it sounds like, I mean, aside from you being your own best advocate, it sounds like your mom is your main advocate. And I'm wondering how that's also impacted your relationships. I mean, my relationships with my mom or with like, with anyone who's playing an advocacy role in your life. I mean, I think my mom has been really, I'm really proud that she's an advocate for me because a couple of years ago I was abused by a staff member where I live. Um, and, and they, they basically the, the cold zones version is they kept me trapped in bed for two hours. Cause I said, fuck. Oh my and God. they, and so they left me without my phone and I couldn't call anybody. And they, they left me trapped in there. And so I finally reached my phone and the very first person I called in hysterics was my mom being like, this is happening to me. Can you help me manage this? And she was calling the organization and she was like advocating for me and fighting for me and basically screaming at me like, what the fuck? Why is my kid trapped in bed? And so when all that went down and I had to have meetings with all the higher ups to be like, what the fuck happened? She was right there by my side being like, don't worry. If we have to take them down, we'll take them down. And like, I really appreciated that because I don't think people understand how care works a lot of the time. And so people assume that even if the attendant is abusive, people assume that they're just, oh, they're just helping you. Like I went to the police Mm -hmm. to try to get help and they called me into their office and said, okay, we're going to have a meeting with you. But if you lie, you you know, you're perjuring yourself. And I was like, uh, this is not did I need a lawyer? Because you told me we're just going to have a chat. What the, so right. I, I'm in the room and I'm talking to the cops about what happened. And they said, Oh, well, they were just, he was just helping you. And I said, do you understand anything about care? And the cops said, well, not really, but I understand he was helping you. And I was like, no, you need to be trained on what care is. What he provided was abusive. This is not care. So I think having my mom there to be like, no, this is abuse. This is wrong. What happened to him? And I'm going to stand up for him. I'm going to scream just as loudly as he is until somebody tells, until somebody fixes it. I think that's really valuable. And I mean, her and I, we have such a close relationship. Like when I started working with sex workers, like I'm so scared to tell her, I'm so scared to tell her 
And I, w- I would always say, oh, I'm going on a date with this guy. We have a date, which is code for I paid two fifty to fuck this dude. Sure, it's a date. Like good value. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so um, I didn't tell her for like the first year that I was doing it, and then one day we're on the phone. And we're I have fa- I found an opening, and I just said, oh, mom, I got to tell you something. She goes, what? And I said, oh, I, I I'm working with sex workers. And I said it really fast like that, and she goes, oh. Good for you. If I was in your situation, I would do the same thing. And it was this really, like, my mom's always been very open, so I wasn't surprised she reacted that way. But it was such a way. I remember taking a big, giant breath and just being like, okay, I feel better now. Like, I'm yeah. not scared of it. Because I always thought that she would be ashamed that her son did this. Um, but then so she's there, probably happy that you're fulfilling yourself. Yeah, she was. Um, and then, you know, I also told her that I probably think due to ableism and due to disability that I'll probably be alone for most of my life. Like I probably won't have a long-term partner. And that's not because I don't want it. That's just because of the systems that we live in. I mean, the same in the States. If you, if you go with a partner, your SSI and SSDI gets cut. So same thing in Canada with ODSP, which is like the Ontario disability support program. They'll Mm. cut, they'll cut your benefits if you're, if you move in or marry. So I've kind of reached this weird plateau of like, yeah, I'll probably be alone most of my life. Um, and, and the system's is, rigged against you. Yeah. And like, I just, you have to reach this place where you're okay with that because otherwise it's just pain too painful. Like seeing your friends get married, seeing your family get married, like it's really hard, but also I know that I can carve out relationships a different way than they do. And that's okay. I really love that. I mean, I get a sense of indomitable spirit, both from you and your mom. And it's no surprise you might've gotten it from her too. <laughs> I mean, my mom was, was my mom in the nicest way. She's a bitch. She's a hard, she's a hard, <laughs> at, she's, she's a bitch in the nicest way. She's my she kind takes, of woman. <laughs> yeah. Takes no shit from anybody. And yeah. even me included takes no shit from anybody. <laughs> and it's like, if you fuck with me, I will make, I'll make it hard for you. <laughs> and, and so when I was growing up, like I when when I I remember we went to a physiotherapy appointment together when I was like two and they had me in the room playing with blocks or doing what kids do and the P, the story goes that the PT leaned over to my mom and goes see your kid over there my mom goes yeah and the the PT goes he's a manipulator just watch him hey because he will try to manipulate the shit out of you to get what he. <laughs> How's that worked out for you? <laughs> and, you know, they weren't wrong. I did. And so my mom had to be really hard with me because I would do things like, I don't want to do physio. I don't want to do it. And she'd be like, no, you have to do it. Do it. And so, like, I appreciate that she was so hard on me growing up because it forced me to, like, have a thick skin and not shy away from stuff. And so I really also appreciate that because then when I – when I started receiving care from the community, it taught me how to interact with them and be like, okay, this is a professional thing. You have to be okay with this. And it's all because she was like, I'm not going to let you cry or be coddled or do any of that stuff because I know you'll manipulate me. So I'm not letting you do it. I mean, it's interesting too, though, because it sounds like she was able to teach you the difference between good treatment and abuse as well. Because oh, yeah. something like the experience you had in your home you know, there might be others tuning into 
an episode like this who are going like, gee, maybe they've had something similar happen. And they were wondering whether or not it was abuse to be left alone for two hours without any recourse, you know? It it would just in case anybody is listening, it is it is abuse. Yeah. And the sad truth of it is this stuff happens to disabled people on the daily, on the regular. And that kind of stuff I did an episode I did the an episode on my abuse probably like two years ago when it first happened. And I remember doing it and thinking, oh, that was really hard to do. But I was like, I have to do it because people need to hear this stuff. They need to hear what it's like to be trapped in your bed for two hours because you swore at 35 years old. Like how, why would someone do that? Yeah. Well, and also that these homes are designed to give you autonomy in, you know, in as many ways as possible. And if they are taking that away from you, like taking your phone away from you so you can't even communicate with the outside world or leaving you immobile, then that is a form of abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the the showers issue, you know, like where you couldn't shower for two weeks. I mean, that's a human dignity issue. I mean, that was so hard because I understood where they're coming from completely. I get it. But by like day one through six, you're fine because you're like, whatever, it'll be. But by day 11, you're like, I feel horrible. My mental health is in like, people don't realize not showering is a big thing. to Your mental health. If you can't do that, like it's hard. Yeah. Well, cause I think it's a thing that makes you feel like you can be part of the outside world a little bit. You can just it? be a person again. And so yes. like that can be really, can just be so hard to yeah. not, not have that. So, I mean, this last time was hard for me because we had people managing the program that didn't, had never done care and we were having staff shortages and the managers don't do care. They manage the program. But I said to them in a crisis like this, why aren't you putting on a pair of gloves and coming to do your job? And that's why I was so angry. Cause I was like, I don't mind the shout, the not showering part. I'll live with that. But if you just got off your asses and came and put on a pair of gloves, this problem we're having wouldn't be such a big problem. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I'm wondering, cause we're talking about, you know, issues related to your day to day, right. You know, living in your care home. Can you walk us through what a typical day is like for you? If there is such a thing as a typical day in the life of Andrew and, and how you're balancing the demands of work and life as you're also managing what your body needs. Uh, that's a great question. Um, so, uh, my day to my typical day today, I get up around eight thirty. I, I usually have a shower, usually use the bathroom, all that stuff, have breakfast, and then from eight thirty to like eleven, I kind of just ha- from like yeah. By the time I'm in my chair, it's ten o'clock. So from like ten to eleven, I just bum around on YouTube and like check emails and do do some Instagram and do all the social media stuff that I'm required to do as a, as a person to, <laughs> in the world. So, yes, clearly it's a requirement. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Of yeah. course. Don't we all do that? And then, yeah. you know, I have care from, then from one to two, I have my lunch. Sony comes in and feeds me and helps me use the bathroom. Um, and then from two to five, I have off time. So like right now, no one's here. So I have time to be, so that's when I do a lot of my podcasting. I set times for interviews and I try to only do one a day. Sometimes I do yeah. two, but I try to only do one a day because I find that my energy levels can be really up and down, especially with IBS. 
if I eat something off, then my then there then they go. My whole day is shit, literally. Um, well, not so, to mention the fact that you're also talking about stuff that can be pretty confronting too. So, from an emotionally energetic point of view, it can be a lot to have more yeah, than one of these happen. Yeah. Today. So I try to only do one a day. Um, and I people always chastise me because they're like, "Well, sometimes you cancel and you cancel a lot." And I was like, "Yeah, I'm disabled. Like." <laughs> I will, I'll probably reschedule with you nine more times, but we will get the interview done. I promise you. Yeah. And it will happen. It might just take a year. Like I have people that I recorded with last May that I haven't released the interview yet. Cause I'm like, I got that all, going on too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so like, and you know, they'll email you, they'll email you and say, when are you going to put my, my episode out? And I'll be like, I don't know. Uh, let me, I, as soon as I can. <laughs> yeah. Let me figure it out. Like, so I, being a content creator is really hard. A disabled content creator is hard because we are expected to, um, we're expected to meet these standards of content creation like once a week or, or every two weeks or once a month. And like sometimes that's not feasible. And sometimes you just have to say no. And I'm getting more comfortable just saying no and being like, sorry, gotta reschedule. Sorry, gotta like, sorry. And like, I, if people don't like that, like I had somebody once I rescheduled with them and they wrote me back and said, you've rescheduled twice. And I was like, uh-huh. And I'll probably do it three more times. But do you, if you want to be on the show, just keep, <laughs> just know that eventually we'll do it. And I, I'm learning to not feel bad about that because that's just my reality. Yeah. I, I love that you and I are very much on the same page where this stuff is concerned. And it's one of those things that I think, comes up a lot when we have these conversations is that many of us, when we get diagnosed with a disability or a chronic illness, people start saying that we've been flaking on them, you know, and people lose friends because of that, or they lose business contacts or whatever it may be. And it's important for people who want to be involved with us, whether that's professionally or personally to learn to be flexible and work around it. Cause we've had to learn to be flexible around our own bodies. And that's a whole process we're going through. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think losing friendships and losing community and I, I I find it really kind of disturbing when it's lateral ableism, when it's from within the disability community and you've explained why you can't, or you've apologized profusely why you can't. And they come back to you with like, well, my time's valuable too. And I'm like, I know it is. I'm so slick. I know it is, but my body did a thing or my care is, my care doesn't work. Or in, in so, like, sometimes for me, it's, my family wants to see me and they want to see me today. And I kind of have to go because today is the day. Like, And so having to explain to somebody who you think also would understand who's angry that you didn't follow through. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry, but my disability has to come first here. Yeah. And, and I have to come first too, yeah. right? You know, when it comes yeah. to boundaries at the end of the day, like we have to put ourselves before we're going to put anyone else. Yeah. Like that's why I think, in the coming months of my show, I'm going to do a whole bunch of episodes that are just me because mm. then I don't have to rely on, I, I don't have to schedule with someone else. I can just do that. Like I do a series on my show called um, Great Flicks and Joysticks where I do episodes where I, I like look at disability in the media and I just review stuff. Mm. So I might do a bunch of those just so that I don't have to, I can just do an episode by myself. Like I like that because I'm not reliant on another person. Yeah. I love that. And I, I'm wondering as well, because like we've, we've touched on this, right? Especially talking about the abuse situation that you had in your home, but 
you know, so many of us living with chronic illness and disability struggle to be seen and heard and believed. And I'm wondering, you know, perhaps with the exception of that particular instance where you were abused in in your home, um, since we've talked about it, but if there are any other situations that you've encountered with caregivers or friends or family didn't honor your diagnosis or your accessibility needs and and what that experience is like and, and how it feels. I mean, not really. I mean, most of the stuff that we're here now, the person that abused me got fired, thank goodness. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah, that's what it should have. And I, I made sure he was too, because they weren't going to for a while. And I said, if you don't, I will take it to the Human Rights Tribunal and I will splash it everywhere. And then you will be, what are you going to do? So I really pushed them to take a stand and do the right thing. And I said, I want him gone. So, But, you know, I haven't really been disrespected in that way since. Thank goodness. Um, and when I, like, my view of care and the way I see my care attendants is most of them are my friends. Like, most of them I'm friends with. Now, according to the organization that I that I live in, we're not supposed to be friends with the attendants because boundaries, blah, blah, blah. But anybody who does care knows how quickly that falls away because they just wiped your ass or they just put a catheter in your dick or they just helped you, you know, do something really intimate. So you have to build a friendship with them. And so most of my attendants that I work with, we all have inside jokes. We all like get along. And so I haven't really had big, big issues with anybody working on the floor. I have issues with people running this program that don't have, they don't have care experience. How can you manage a care home, but you've never wiped an ass? How can you manage a care home, but you've never put somebody to bed or given them a shower? How, like that, that to me, that is where I think all of the care systems everywhere in the world are broken because you'll employ these people who make 120000 a year to do what? And then the people on the floor doing the actual work mm. make peanuts in comparison and they're burnt out and tired and they deserve that money. But you're giving it to a manager who's not actually doing the actual job. So it, I think the care system needs to be overhauled everywhere, whether we're in the States or whether we're in Canada. I think everywhere the idea of care is so backwards. Yeah. And it, it needs to include disabled people. Absolutely. Like, uh, in in the hiring process, in the firing process, in the the um dispute resolution process, all that stuff needs to include the people that live it every day. These managers, while they're very nice, they don't have care experience. So what are you doing here? Yeah. Really fair point. It's, you know, asking people to understand the fundamentals from an experiential point of view. And you know, I wonder also, you mentioned the Human Rights Tribunal, which sounds like it's a Canadian thing because in the States, I don't know that we have anything of that nature, but it seems like it's something that gives you leverage when it comes to your care. So yeah, can you talk pre- a bit about that? It's a provincial, we, we never had to go through with it, but it's a provincial, like in Ontario, I'm in the province of Ontario, so it's a provincial. So in your case, it would be like a state, the state government, right. you go to the state, the state, like... I don't know. You, the what's insurance your, commissioner or something. I'm yeah, yeah. So the state disability people, right. whoever right. they are, and you would plead your case and say, I was abused here, that. So it's kind of like that. And so we filed the claim and we said to them, we then sent them the claim 
And they called me back very hurriedly and said like, oh no, what do you want us to do? And I said, I will go ahead with this unless you make changes. Mm. And I kind of threatened them with further action if they didn't, if they didn't fire him and make a change. Now, three years on, they haven't really made a lot of changes. But I also realized that the more I fight, the more harder it is for me to live in this environment. And so not, not that I won't stand up for myself, but the constant hating them wasn't serving me. And so I just kind of had to just take a breath, let it go, pick the battles and be like, this is not a battle that I have to fight anymore because at least they fired him. Yeah. Like at, at least they let him go. And I, they, and they have a huge file on me about what a, what a shit to serve I am. And I don't care because I'm like, I'm going to stand up for my rights when I'm being abused. But at the same time, I live in a, a prime spot in downtown Toronto that is the the way that community care is set up in, in Ontario is so it can take up to 10 to 15 years to get a community housing spot after you apply. Wow. It can take 10 to 15 years to call you. So I don't want to lose this spot. Also, because I'm in downtown Toronto, I have more access to queerness than I did before and access to my sex worker and access to like people that get me. So I don't want to move. But, you know, I think that these types of environment, like it shouldn't take 10 to 15 years for us to get housing. This kind of housing should be standard all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's, so it's a care issue, but it's also an availability issue. It's availability and it's the government, it's the government's not understanding the value of care, not needing care themselves. If all of our politicians needed somebody to wipe their asses, do you know how quickly those bills would go, those plans for proper housing would go through? Mm. They would be fast tracked through every single time. And every house on every corner would have disability supports attached to it. Like, I think the way we've left care to be like community care, home care, it's so vital to a lot of us and it's just never funded enough. And I find that in 2022, that's reprehensible. Like, what are we, why, why all of these politicians who are making these laws that are blocking this stuff are going to need care one day. And when they do, they're all going to be like, horribly surprised to learn that they only get four hours a day or three hours a day or two hours a day to do all your care. Are you okay with that? Probably not. Hmm. It's it's why I call so many people pre-disabled because so many people are going to be I, in the same boat. Yeah. And I, I fully agree with that. Like you're going to be there. And if, and becoming disabled is, only if you're lucky. Like, if we're not lucky, we could all die tomorrow. But, like, you mm. know, if you're lucky, you get to become a disabled person. So, yes. Yeah. Why, like, why aren't we talking about that more now? And we, I really wish we would. I just wish we would do it in a way that was way more compassionate than what we are. Cause mm. we can talk about disability rights all day. And, like, I love Judy Human. I love all the stuff that, like, the forefathers before me have done. Mm. They're amazing. And I got to speak with Judy Human on my show and I just about fell over and died. <laughs> Like, I bet. I was a wreck. I could not speak for the whole 45. She she texts me the day of our recording and goes, yeah, I want to do it. Can, can, is it okay if we only do 45 minutes? And I said, Judy, whatever you want, yeah. I will do. Whatever Just, Judy wants, Judy gets. Yeah. You are like, the, you're a star yeah. who, I ne- who I never thought would say yes to anything I do. 
The fact that you said yes to me was like, <gasps> so she comes on and she told me all about her fi- the 504 sit-ins and all the stuff that she experienced. And I, if you listen back to that episode, I think it was like 215 or something. Hmm. I didn't speak that whole episode. I was like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like you, you having nothing to say. <laughs> I had, I had, no, I was so afraid to like cut her off. So mm-hmm. afraid to be disrespectful of this like pioneer of yeah. basically disability rights. I was like, I, I I bow I bow down to you whatever you want like whatever you <laughs> wow I mean it's it's so I, I'll what I'll do is I'll link to that episode on the webpage for this episode so that people can check it out as well because it'll be great for everyone tuning into this to hear Andrew in a different light for sure <laughs> I am certainly not my my polished self that day I was you can hear it in my voice <laughs> I was so with Judy Human are you kidding me I was so fucking nervous to talk to her and yeah. she's the sweetest person but yeah. I was like uh. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know what to do and it was but you know the the irony with that episode my podcast is not transcribed because transcriptions take time mm. they cost money that I don't have I'm it's it's me running my show so so during that episode recording I put it out and I didn't have transcripts and I told everybody this and somebody was like how dare Andrew not have right. transcripts on Judy Human's thing and I so they, their team came back to me and was like, would you let us make transcripts for this episode? And I was like, mm-hmm. of course, of course, please do it. But that makes me think about like all these things that we're expected to do as disabled creators to make it universally accessible are often not accessible. Yeah. Even things like, I mean, I, I experienced that even like when I'm posting on social media and like capitalizing the first word of every hashtag and things. I never do. Oh my goodness. I mean, I, I, I learned about it early on, of course, but, you know, doing things like that and, um, giving, um, an alt text description for anything that's visual, it, it takes a lot of spoons to do stuff so like that. So much time and nobody, yeah. and nobody understands that. And I think when you, when, I, when I, and I've written about it on Instagram posts and stuff and people have said like, wow, you're not being accessible. Like, but actually I am. I'm trying to tell you that like these companies, Zoom, for instance, mm. which we're recording on right now, needs to do something more built in. Yes. Where AI. Instead of, yeah. Instead of me having to find a button, do all the stuff and add a third party, whatever. Why can't I just click a button and it just shows up? There it is. Yep. Absolutely. Well, just like the way that thank, I mean, thank God Instagram has started doing captions for reels and, and live videos and yeah. things like that. But even so, they're not always perfect. You know, um, and then having to go back and edit things and it, it can be extremely time consuming. And when you have limited energy or limited mobility or limited access, it, it makes it harder to make everything as accessible as possible. So we need to have it built in. Absolutely. Like for your show, Uninvisible Pod, are you the only, are you like, is it you and you? It's me and me. And then my mom does the transcriptions because oh, she's nice. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so if like, you want to. You know, that's it's she, she's retired. That's what she does for me. If she wants a job, then if she wants extra work, <laughs> let me know. I will let her know. Because <laughs> I need somebody, but 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 um, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like we don't we don't have these giant teams of people behind yeah. us. It's us trying to scratch to scrounge out a living because we couldn't get conventional work. So yep. we were like, fuck, what do we do? I guess, I guess so. I think that the disability community needs to be mindful of that. And I think, you know, there's such a disconnect between people who became disabled 
and people who are congenitally disabled at birth. Mm-hmm. And so when you become disabled, you want everything to be accessible all the time. Yeah. But when you're congenitally disabled, you don't, what you don't realize is that a lot of things can't be accessible because of just limitations. And I wish we would have a nuanced conversation around how access is inaccessible to a lot of us, even mm-hmm. when we want to provide it. And so my show, like I've been featured on so many different podcast lists around disability. And they'll always say at the end of the, the list, like, is so-and-so show transcribed? Mine always says no. And mm-hmm. I just kind of shake my head and go, it's not that I don't want to be like, yeah, please, please don't take that as a slight. It's not again. as simple as a yes or a no. It's that I yeah. wish I could, but yeah, it's that I wish I could, but I don't, I'm not rich. Like I yeah. make a little bit of money off Patreon from the show that I use to survive and feed myself. Right. Like, so it's not like, I yeah, wish like that, people don't realize we do not make money from podcasts. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes, yes. I have patrons and yes, I make a monthly amount, but right. all that money goes into my credit cards, and my bills and my food and my, because care is expensive. Yeah. And my disability supply, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what it goes into. Or it might go into sex work. Who knows? But yeah. it goes in, but like, but you deserve it. Yeah. It goes into care. It doesn't go mm-hmm. into like, I'm not rolling in the dollars. Right. Yeah. I, I wish people would understand that more just because we are, I guess, quote unquote, media personalities doesn't mean that we are necessarily earning the kind of living that people think we are from like, glossy photographs. You know, you know, I saw, I saw the, I saw today and we're recording this in what, February. Yeah. yeah February. I saw today, like somebody offered Joe, Joe Rogan, one, one million US dollars to keep his ridiculous, like shitty and horrible podcast on the air. And I just thought, why the fuck isn't somebody offering me a hundred million dollars? I like, wonder what? about that all the time. Like, where is my, I don't know yeah. what. Cause I could use that and it would actually like go to good use. <laughs> it would go, if I got a hundred million dollars to do my show, oh, the format would change. There'd be video, there'd be a yeah. YouTube channel. Like, it would be like an NPR show. It would be so yeah. beautifully produced. <laughs> it would go everywhere. It would sound so crisp. It would be like Ira Glass. Totally. Yeah. And we'd have, we'd have publicists and everyone would know yeah. our names. Yeah, exactly. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko, a graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law. She's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. Yeah. I, I'm wondering as well, um, I'm going to circle back again. I'm going to, I, we tend to go off on tangents oh, on the I show all the time. Ta- so great. Yeah, we're, we're tangent people. So I, I want to quickly ask you and then sort of like get into some of the intersectionality stuff that we have been talking about even more deeply. But what do you think, because this has come up a few times on the show, especially recently, what do you think of the concept of medical PTSD? Would you say this is something that you've endured or that you've seen your peers endure within the medical system with regard to your care? Oh yeah. I've been in the hospital. Um, and then they don't take care of me. When I had C. diff, when I got C. diff and I was in the hospital, they kept me in a quarantine room. This is pretty pandemic. I was in a quarantine room for a week. 
and I couldn't leave the bed and I was in a diaper for a week, which they changed mm. about every two, three hours. They would come and change me, which like is their job and also thank you, but also like gross. And so, you know, the day that I left, the day that I was to be discharged from the hospital, they said, we need to make sure you don't have any more C. diff. In order to do that, you have to have, you have to have a formed poop. And I was like, okay, great. So I said to them, can you sit me up in a Hoyer lift and let me, you know, poo like a normal, like I normally would. So I can like know that it's formed. And they're like, no, no, you can just shit in the, you can just go in the diaper. And I said, no, I don't want that. I want to sit up like a human for the first time in a week and please have a poo. So they they said, no, 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 no. And I had to have my mom call the hospital and be like, he's fine, but he wants to shit normally. Could you help him do that, please? And so they they were very reluctant, mad at me to do that because they were like, oh, we have to get a Hoyer lift. We have to get a lift to lift you. And I said, I'm in a hospital. Go yeah, like you should have us. that. Yeah. yeah. Like go get me one. And, you know, fine. So like that happened. And then there have been other experiences where like 10 years ago, yeah, almost 10 years ago now, I, um, I, no, it was like six years ago. I had sex with somebody with a, a sex worker. They texted me and said, I think I have blah go see your gp get tested so i hadn't i hadn't been formally properly tested in about 10 years so i went to my gp i roll in his office to go get tested and he goes i can't test you because my office is not accessible and i was like that's ridiculous but okay so i I go to my local hospital again and i roll into the nurse's station and i say okay i want to i want to do an sti test please and they go why do you need that and I said, oh my because, God. because I'm 33 and I just fucked a guy up the ass recently and I need to make sure that I'm okay. I didn't say it like that, but I was like, but I'm, like I'm sexually like, active. Yeah, come on. So, so like they were so shocked and it took them three hours to give me the ER doc. And he was like, oh, you can just go back to your GP. And I said, I'm, I went to the hospital because my GP wouldn't do it. That's why I'm here. And he was like, oh. I guess we can help you. And oh I was like, God. you guess, you guess. You're like, literally a medical provider. Like, yeah, like why are we arguing? The, like, what is even happening here? So then they tested me. And, you know, in Canada, they don't tell you your results unless it's positive. So, or at least in Ontario, where I am, and every doctor that I've been to, they don't tell you unless something's going on. So I had never been tested formally. And I was terrified that I had something. Because, because. I just hadn't been, I had spent my 20s being irresponsibly not tested and having a lot of sex and not doing it properly. But then wh- when I, you know, hit my my late 20s, I was like, I, I have to be, this is, I need to be responsible. Mm. Like, if I'm going to be fucking sex workers and people that have sex for a living, I need to be responsible. Yeah. So I just kind of made myself get over it and get, te- and now I get tested all the time. Um, but even with my doctor who I love and who was amazing, one day she goes to me, we're, I'm getting tested. And she goes, were you the recipient of anal sex? And I said, no, I, I gave it. And she goes, well, good. Cause if you had received it, then we would have to get you out of your bed, out of the chair and to do a swab. And I said, also, that's your job. I said, yeah. Why is that a problem? Oh, cause it would just be harder for, you know, everyone. And I was like, but, and I said to her like one day doc, I'm gonna, 
I'm going to do that. And I'm going to come to you asking for an anal swab mm. and you're going to have to do it for me. Mm. And it shouldn't even be a question for you. Um, yeah. It's just those kinds of um, microaggressions really. Yeah. And it? I mean, she, again, I love her. She's great. She actually, my GP right now is such a sweet lady. Mm. When I was having um, belly issues and really worried about stuff, she said, can I come to your home? And and see you in your house, which no doctor has ever has ever asked to do. Yeah, that's She's very like, kind. Can I come to your house and can I touch your belly to make sure you don't have a mass, to make sure that it's not something else, to mm-hmm. make sure all the tummy issues you've been having are not like something that we More were serious. really worried about. She came to my house and saw me in my bed in my home. And after she left, I cried because I was like, I've never mm-hmm. had a GP ever in my 37 years of life say can I come to your house? Yeah. Never. It's never happened. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's like some of this is about basic levels of care and not making snide comments and being prepared to do your job that you signed up to do when you went to medical school. And the other side of it is offering human compassion. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what I mean, real care is, right? That, I mean, that is real care. That is, that is the thing that I think, and I've talked to a lot of my friends who are nurses and I've talked to a lot of my friends who are, doctors and they get one page of disability in medical school like one or two pages they and that's in canada a... so probably in the states it's yeah page. it's like zero <laughs> yeah and i just think you know like it's so it's such a shame we need mm-hmm. to see like i would love to see a disability version of Grey's anatomy why the fuck don't mm-hmm. we have that yet or you know reboot er but this time with all disabled doctors yeah. To sh- to show how like we have missed the mark here, we need these people. Like you know, you you work for WeGo or you've done stuff with WeGo. With so, WeGo, like, you, yeah. You know the importance of like patient advocacy. Mm. Like, why don't we see these representations in the world? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I think it's also understanding the nuance of those representations too, because everyone thinks that disability is one thing. And everyone thinks that disability is Johnny getting in a car accident, yeah, getting getting paralyzed, and then having to overcome the grief of being paralyzed. And I mean, that's one of the things I talk about in my show too. I'm going off on another tangent. Get ready. <laughs> Go for it. You know what? Um, um, so one of the things I talk about with my guests on my show. Also, you should be a guest on my show. We should talk about that. Um, yes, please. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll make it happen. Uh, in in like nine months, but you know, it'll, yeah, it'll happen. Like a year, year it. Happen, yeah. <laughs> but so like I talk about disability grief on my show with a lot of my guests mm. because like it, it disability grief isn't just, oh no, I had an accident and now I have to learn how to walk again or learn how to live again. It's, oh no, I lost the ability to pee. Oh no, I can't masturbate. Oh no, no one thinks I'm sexy because I'm disabled. Like, there's so many layers of it that yeah. no one's talking about, which is why I love my platform because I get to be like, hey, let's talk about this for real for a second. Even if it's just a tweet, 280 characters, cool. At least I put it out there. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I love about what you do too because you sometimes just tweet like, has anybody thought about this? Or like, I have a question. And you just put out what you're thinking and and it's so unadulterated and so pure. Yeah, like I don't, I try not to filter because I feel like a lot of social media, we know this, social media is fake. It's a huge lie. It's a huge, even some of the stuff that I put is not, you know, like, well, not not your stuff, I think, but you know, other people's stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we play the game. We play the game. As much Um, as we can. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I 
try to use social media almost as like live journals to be like, I feel this. Let's talk about this. And like hashtag old enough to remember live journal. (laughs) Right. It was so good back in the day. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Don't even talk to me about MySpace unless you know about live journal, you know? (laughs) Oh man, MySpace was my jam. No, for me it was MSN Messenger or ICQ. Not AOL Instant Messenger? No, I see that was a really big You were one of the cool kids. Yeah. AOL was like, you know, more American. We had Mm. ICQ in Canada and we had MSN Messenger. So like that was my jam back in the day. (laughs) And I I just wanted all the I just wanted all of the cute boys to be on my MSN. You and me both. (laughs) And it still never happened. But like, you know, so when I put that stuff out there on my Twitter and my Instagram right now, it's just telling how it feels. Because I don't think we do that enough. I think disability has become really whitewashed. Yeah. um, Well, that's actually, that leads me to my next question for you, because obviously you have experienced, like, this is how we circle the tangent back around. I, I, you know, obviously you've experienced prejudice in the healthcare system, right? Because we know living in a disabled body and some of the experiences that you've shared with us, like, this is what happens. People say things out of the corner of their mouths and they don't want to perform their full duties, et cetera. But as it regards the way you present, you know, you talked about being cisgender, I mean, being non-binary, but also sort of presenting as cisgender and, you know, being white presenting. Can you see your circumstances being different if you presented perhaps as BIPOC? As a hundred percent, a hundred percent. If I was, if I was a brown or black person trying to talk about this stuff, I would be shut down immediately. Yeah. Like I have so much privilege in what I do. Which is why, you know, I try to do things like uplift black voices. Mm. I try to, I'm doing a whole thing on my show right now. I don't know when it's coming out, but on my show right now, upon recording, I'm doing a whole month of black history month. So black disabled creators talking about their life. And I've, I, I think that kind of stuff is so valuable because yeah, it's nice to hear from me and I'm love to share my story, but also sometimes I have to shut up. Like, do you? I don't want you to. I mean, (laughs) no, but sometimes like, like, my privilege allows me to say a lot of stuff mm. that if a black person said that a black disabled person said that they would be told, no, you're wrong. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fine line to walk, isn't it? When you are living in a disabled body. So there's certainly the, the irony being, of course, that I'm not walking over any lines. Or, oh, that's, oh, that's you're right. You're rolling. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, but you know, like it is that thin line where on one side you're experiencing prejudice and on the other there is that privilege. And I, I think it's just so important for us to recognize that in these conversations, because it's a huge part of the way in which care is administered. Oh yeah. And I think, you know, if I was a, if I was a black person mm-hmm. who had gone through the abuse that I, that we spoke about, it could have been way worse. Yeah. It might, it might've been, and that's scary. And I've talked to, to black disabled people who have been abused in the system who are just like, you know, if I was white, it wouldn't be this way. And that's, it's a shame. We have so much work to do to dismantle our racism and dismantle our ableism. But the way we do that, especially around ableism, is to start talking about it. So that's why on my platforms, I talk about it, but I don't do it in a way that's like, you're an ableist, fuck you. Right. I try to do it in a way that's like, let's talk about it together. Let's call people in instead of calling Yeah. Them. I mean, sometimes it's really nice to call somebody out, but that doesn't get as far. <laughs> Depends on the person, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, do you think that these racial and 
religious and gender and sexual or sexuality inequities and biases in the healthcare system constitute their own public healthcare crisis? That's a big question. Um, you know, given the pandemic, I don't know what we're what we're determining as a crisis right now. Um, I mean, I, I think the pandemic has made all of it even more clear. No. Yeah, that's true. I think I think that yes. Then I will say yes. They do con- constitute their own crisis. I'm going to tell you that is the correct answer. You just won two hundred dollars. Just kidding. I don't even good. Because we need me. the money. <laughs> yeah, pay down me two hundred dollars. Thank you so much, though. No, but like I think that the way we get out of these crises that we've invented for ourselves because we're so ridiculous is to hire disabled people, hire black and BIPOC people who are disabled to talk about these things, hire trans and non-binary disabled folks to talk about this stuff. Like, cause they all want to use, like one of the things that I hate in my job, I love my job, but I hate the truth that somebody will ask me to speak but they'll be like, we have no money. And I'm like, Oh, all the time. And well, I'm we've like, got exposure. Yeah. And it's like, I can't pay my rent on exposure. That dick I want to suck later, it's <laughs> going to cost me 250. Can't pay for it on exposure. Need real money. <laughs> so like, so like I, but you know, the way we get out of these crises is we hire these individuals mm-hmm. and we put them in roles of power. Like one of the things I love about the work I do with my sister on bumping is mm-hmm. that I, we created that coming together. And when we were looking at my role, my role would be, she said, well, what do you want to be? And we were talking about it. And she goes, well, what if we made you the chief disability officer? And we looked around to see if there was any role like that anywhere. And there wasn't. And she was surprise, like, this, surprise. Yeah. Right. And she was like, why don't we just make one? This would be a great role for you because then you are from the tippity top. Whenever we do something, I will go to you for advice, hmm. questions to ask you stuff to feed back to you what we're doing to make sure that it's completely accessible. And I love that. So in in terms of the crisis we're facing now, if we put everybody in position of power, like a chief disability officer for For the healthcare system, yeah, home care, um, insurance, all that stuff. Banking. We need a chief disability officer everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. Um, And I think, you know, that's the way we resolve these crises but i think mm. we're we're too greedy in our north american concept of what capitalism is oh yeah um that's a big even, problem yeah to even consider that well because it also it's i mean if, if we really look at capitalism as the root of so many of these problems it is the thing that tells us that someone is worth more than someone else at which bottom. is so, which is like so i just you know i was really hoping at the beginning of this pandemic that this would have taught us to just abolish capitalism? Can yeah. it be done? Like, like we don't need... Joe Rogan doesn't fucking need $100 million. You know what they could use that money for? Anything else. Anything like, else, literally. Like in Canada right now, we're in the middle of the trucker convoy. The freedom convoy yeah. is going through Canada upon, you know, upon this recording. And I read the other day that the, it is costing the Canadian government a million dollars a day. A million dollars a day. Which for that kind go, of ignorance. Yeah. Which could go to anywhere else, yeah. But particularly to to marginalized and disenfranchised people, yeah. But it's not, which tells you a whole lot about where we are. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I want to talk more about bumping, um, since you brought it up a moment ago as well. And 
Can you talk to us? I mean, we've already mentioned how, you know, the idea of being a sexual person when you're disabled is such a like taboo conversation and like under the covers kind of conversation and happens behind closed doors, especially in this puritanical culture. But can you share with us how you've come into your own sexually while living in a disabled body and, and what personal and cultural prejudices you've had to face in order to own your desires and your ability to offer this to other people who want to be sexual? Oh, there's so many questions there. Uh, so yeah, part so there, one. Are, there are quite a few. <laughs> so part one, part one A was what am I, what's the first part? Um, how you've come into your own sexually while living in a disabled body, especially in a culture that tells us not to. I mean, I kind of did it initially as shock value. So six years ago, oh no, realistically like 10, yeah, 10 years ago, I started, I, I left school. I moved to a little town north of Toronto called Richmond Hill, which is like an hour north of like the big city. Hmm. And I, I didn't have a job, wasn't working, was living on social assistance, which was not enough to survive. Hmm. And I was like, fuck this. I want pocket money. I want to go, I want to have money to do stuff. I want to just have money to buy groceries, like by myself without a problem. So I started looking into what I could do. And I, I, I phoned up disability support employment places and they were like, we can get you a job flipping burgers. We can get you a job as a call center rep. And I was like, I don't want to do either of those things. Flipping burgers with my plastic CP is a dangerous game. Don't like, why would you even <laughs> Depends think Depends how it? you like your burgers. Yeah. Super well done or super well. <laughs> so I went to them and I said, I wanted, I have, 10 years of school behind me. I have a, I have a BA in law and an MA in law. I want to do something around disability. Can you find me like a speaking gig job to do that? And they go, Oh no, that's just a hobby. You can't really do that. And I was kind of spurred on by their no. And I was like, Oh yeah, watch me do it. So I went on Vistaprint and I made up a card that said Andrew Gerza, disability awareness consultant, having no idea what that meant. Pretty sure I stole that from somebody. And I put it on a card and put my email and my phone number and said, this is what I do. Hire me. And I just started going around to every event that I went to saying, this is what I do. Hire me. Do you have, do you want someone to do this for you? This is what I do. And people took my card and eventually I would get, you know, a few emails here and there saying, we have a, we have a talk for you. Do you want to try this? Or, you know, would you like to come and speak to this group? Could you speak about this? And it just sort of snowballed from there. And then I did things like I emailed HuffPo, cold called, cold emailed them one day and just said, wow. do you have any stories on your queer site about queerness and disability from a queer disabled perspective? And they said, no, we don't. And I, they said, we don't pay right now, but would you write us a few articles and we'll publish them and get your name out there? And I said, okay, cool. So they published a few and put my my picture on the front of their like homepage for a few times. That was cool. And like, there I was telling the queer, my queer disability story and using words like cripple and articles and being really like outspoken. And I was like, Oh, this is going to go somewhere. And then kind of after that, I was like, well, what do I put in the podcast space? What do I try that? And I tried making my own show before disability after dark for the first year I tried one and didn't go anywhere. I didn't love it, but I was like, Oh, I can do this now. Okay, great. So then it it was all self-taught. 
and all out of a need to, I need to make money, but I deserve to make money. I'm going to do it this way. And you deserve to take up space. It sounds like it's also about claiming space. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. And then so between all that, I was asked to co-host the first disabled sex party in the world um, Mm. called Deliciously Disabled, which we hosted in Toronto about six years ago, which feels makes me feel really old because I can't believe it was that long already. (laughs) Wow. Uh, um, But so... We did that, and from there, like my people, people know my name because of what I do. But, but I'm I'm also very humble. Like I don't, I want to just do my work and keep my head down and not piss off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's there's also so many prejudices that you've had to face in order to come into that space, right? Like the prejudices that that we are sort of socialized into to believe that or that we are taught by so much of our culture that a disabled body has less worth. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'll be honest. I started doing it because I wanted to get laid. I wanted gay men to notice me. And I was like, if I put my So you were horny, that's why. (laughs) Yeah, basically. I mean, that's basically, basically the truth. My whole career path has been has been charted out by horniness. Yeah, pretty much. But that's not necessarily untrue because I did want gay men to notice me. I wanted mm-hmm. to be seen as just as viable as they were. And I I noticed that if I was provocative with what I was talking about and really blunt about the fact that I'm a disabled person that sucks dick, like maybe they'll pay attention to me. And they did. And mm-hmm. so that that kind of allowed me to then have a platform to speak about other stuff too. And so... Bumpin' came came about from a documentary that I did back in 2017 called Picture This, where I talk about how I couldn't masturbate anymore. My sister was living in Australia at the time, still is. She saw the documentary and was like, oh, I didn't realize there was a problem. So I went to go visit her that that spring. We were on the beach in Australia talking about it. And she goes, well, why can't you just use a sex toy? And I said, well, most sex toys in the market aren't accessible to me. I can't because of my dexterity. And so I explained to her all that. And she goes, well, no one's made one. And I said, no. And so we did some research. We did some preliminary Reddit research. And we found that 92% of people that we spoke to said, I want a toy like this. And no one's done this. So so bumping kind of came out of a need of what I needed. But also when we realized that this could change the world, we were like, oh, this is like, this is what it is. And so we we decided to to make the first disability-driven sex toy with the bump and joystick, which is available for pre-order right now on our website. At a, it's so exciting. I am really excited. And for anybody who is wondering what, what it is, it's about a one-meter-long device that looks across between a foam roller and a body pillow. If they had a yep. love child, this is what it would be. Yep. And so basically, the this toy, the top half is a soft, plushy, pillowy pillow, that you hold into. And if you don't have dexterity, this means you can grab onto the top, mm. hold onto that. And the bottom half is a peg where you can put your favorite toy and basically fuck yourself with the toy. So like in terms of accessibility, it's a game changer. Yeah. Um, and so it came from just having discussions with my non-disabled sister, talking about the reality and her being like, we could change the game with this. Mm. We could really do something cool with this. So be becoming the chief disability officer of 
a company like that and then being able to talk about this stuff so openly is really cool because it says to the rest of the world, why didn't you do this first? Like, yeah, I, I love it because also what's so cool about the joystick is that it's not something that's just for disabled people. No, it's for everyone. It's for people who have injury, arthritis, old age, or who just want to use their hands for other stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to, I don't know, tweak your partner's nipples while you're fucking yourself with the toy. I don't know what you want to do in the bedroom, <laughs> but it's open for everybody. And yeah. that's what I love about it because we're using disability-driven design mm. to create something for the world, everyone, not yeah. just for disabled people. And it's also where having someone like you who can speak directly to the needs that that you have that you need to be met that have not been met by previous iterations of other sex toys, you can actually say, here's where the gap in the market is and here's what we can address. Yeah. And I mean, what's been cool about my role is that while her and I are on different time zones, she's in Australia, I'm here. I still go to lots of meetings. I've gone to all of our, all of our, um, a lot, not all of our, but a lot of our pitch meetings I've gone to. I've got to feedback to the design team. Yesterday, I helped them with packaging stuff. Like we, she asked me about packaging and what would be accessible. Like I've been, I've been there from ideation all the way through to creation, which I fucking love so much because having a disabled person in the room to give you access points as you're doing something is really great. And it's not just me. She has people from all over Australia where we're based doing testing for her of the toy, feeding in feedback, asking questions. Like we've really taken it really seriously so that it's not just a flash in the pan. It can change the industry overall. I love it. And how would you encourage others in the chronic illness and disability community to work on embodying their own sexual needs and their sexuality in the way that you've modeled? Um, I would say don't be afraid to talk about the hard shit. Don't be, it isn't all sexy Instagram poses with you in your lingerie or you, you know, with a person fucking you in your wheelchair and then putting it on Instagram. It's not that a lot of my posts and you know, because you follow me, like a lot of my, a lot of my stuff is really real and really raw and sometimes doesn't talk about sexiness, talks about IBS and how I shit myself and how I'm having emotions around that. And how like, so I think instead of worrying how to embody this sexy facade of what hotness is, which has been defined by white, cis, able-bodied people forever and ever, talk about what's hot for you. Mm. Talk about what, what makes you feel good or bad. I think, you know what? Let me rephrase that. I think we need to also talk about what makes us feel bad mm-hmm. about our bodies. What makes us feel... What is One of the things I do on my Instagram that I love doing is... Today, my internalized ableism sounds like this. Yeah. Here's what it sounds like. Let me write it out for you and tell you what that feels. Put that out there on on the Instagram. Put that out there on the Twitter. Put that out there in, in regards to how you feel about sex. Because I think that so much of sexuality is posed and, and made up and like it all has to look perfect. And, and what I'm learning very quickly is, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example um, I have IBS and so, and so, but I love eating ass. Okay. It's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> it's one of my favorite sexual things to do for somebody because I don't have to do anything. They have to sit in my face and I don't have to move. <laughs> super, yeah, it's super accessible and I love it. So with my sex worker, 
I'd eat ass. And then my, a few days later, my body would be like, Oh, we're not feeling good. Let's have diarrhea for four days. So I was so scared to tell him because I was like, that's really like, how do I be hot for him? And also be like, yo, I ate you out and I'm shitting for days. Mm -hmm. So we explained this and he goes, well, why don't we just use a dental dam? Why don't we just use something like that? And we, we discovered that a dental dam is too, too small because he has to hold it and put it around his hips Mm. and put it around him so that I could do the thing. And Mm. he was like, well, why don't we just get therabands and try that? Oh, wow. That's a really creative solution. We haven't tried them yet, but they're sitting, they're sitting on my desk right now. But when we do try them together, we're going to try. Can I eat his ass while being protected by a theraband Mm. and not get sick? And so like having the conversations about how do we adapt this sexy thing we want to do or change it up to make it sexy is really important. So that's, that's how I would say to model it. Don't rely on this old archaic idea of sexy. Talk about the hard shit. Let people know what is hard about it. But even though it's hard, you're still worthy of a sexual experience. And also it it sounds like what you're also saying is it's about intimacy that real intimacy is actually about talking about the good stuff and the bad stuff. Yeah. And I think again, not to harp on on the disability rights movement, but I think it's so boring. I'm so bored of it. It's so boring because it's the same conversation over and over again. Well, I think part of that is because you come up against the same, the same difficulties every time. So then the conversation remains the same, but it's like, if we're the same from both sides, nothing will ever change. Like I want to get into the nuance, the nitty gritty, the fun stuff, the, the hard stuff, the emotionality. One of my things that I like to say is that I talk about how disability and sexuality really feels because we can talk about disability and sexuality, but that usually starts and stops with the question of how do you have sex and can you have sex? Whereas when you ask how does sex and disability feel, it opens up so much more. There's an emotionality to that that is not there before. Yeah. So actually addressing the emotional alongside the physical. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What about if someone's tuning into this episode and they're like, Andrew Gerza is winning at life. I want to win at life too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm not friends. I don't know from where I'm sitting, you're doing great. But if you were to offer advice to someone tuning in, or maybe it's like advice to your younger self, right? Someone who's living with maybe invisible chronic illness or disability, what nuggets would you offer that, that would help them step into themselves in the way that you've been able to do like your top three, if you could choose. I find that so funny because I, my nuggets are just be real. Just be real and just be real. I love it. Be honest about your experience. Be open to listening to someone else, even if even if you don't agree with them. Mm. And 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 that's been a hard one for me because if I don't agree with you, the block and delete button's right there. Like it just easily does it. (laughs) Like be open to listening, but and also be open to being really honest about what your needs are. Yeah, which is all part of being real, huh? Yeah, like, it's just, it's really just be real and be really, like, because I think, again, the disability discourse is, again, designated to white paraplegics who were once normal and who are now are not as normal, but are still normal enough to be accepted. Whereas if I roll in and say, yo, I was born disabled, 
Nobody knows what to do with that. So just, I would say, be real about it, be honest, and be ready to be vulnerable all the time. Which is also about communicating, right? It's about saying what you need, as you've said, and and recognizing what you need and then telling people what you need. Yeah, exactly. I love that. What about, I mean, I, I have a feeling I know what one or two of the answers to this question will be, but if, if you had to choose three things in your life that give you unbridled joy that you're totally unwilling to compromise on, where do you turn when you need to light your own fire? Sex work. I knew, I knew orgasms would be high on the list. <laughs> I turn to I turn to sex work to 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 be excited, but also like I'm such a grandpa. I like sitting and listening to murder podcasts. Like it's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> it's to sit and listen to how somebody was brutally murdered, and then have a giggle about it with the podcast. I was like, that's I love that stuff. Tell me you listen to my favorite murder. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah. If, okay. Good. Just checking. <laughs> of course, Karen and Georgia. I'm a, like, I love them. I also listen. <laughs> Like I listen to who else? I listen to um, Wine and Crime. Oh, and yeah. I, and I listen to, and that's why we drink. And those are my like, like, top three favorite <laughs> shows to like get in on. Love it. Um, but I like them because they take me away from disability and I get to do look at something totally different. But so yeah, blowjobs, being an old man and listening to podcasts uh, about <laughs> murder. And then, you know, I love anything 80s inspired, anything like nostalgic when I was growing up. I will watch. I love eighties films. I love 80s music. I love all that stuff. Like that gets me excited. Um, a lot of and, ableism, a lot of sexism, a lot of misogyny too, though. How do you balance yeah. that against what you know about the world now? I mean, you just go fuck. It was a different time, man. It was a yeah. different time. <laughs> it was a different like, time. It, it was, was simpler in some ways, but it yeah, was not as nuanced. Like it was forty years ago. We have a lot of, but we're, you know, the sad thing is, we're still there. Like we're still yeah. a lot of our mindsets around disability are still forty years on. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I feel like we need to host like a a disability 80s movie marathon night. Oh, I'm so here for it. Party. I'm so yeah. Can we please make that happen? Like a Blade I, Runner movie night sex party. Oh yes, please. I'm so here for it. I would. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, um, yeah. yeah, yeah we're yeah. we're ticking all the boxes. Yeah. So Andrew, I, I know we have talked so much today, and like I could keep talking forever because I am loving all of this, but. If you could sum up, you know, the conversation we've had and where you are heading with your work, what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you in your ongoing work? My ask for listeners today is um, listen to my show, review it everywhere, tell all your friends, (laughs) apply to be a guest. If you go to andrewgerza.com, my website, there's an application, sign up on my Calendly to be a guest. And I probably will, I probably will reschedule it with you 90,000 times, but <laughs> worth it. I want you to be a guest on my show to come and tell your disability story. And I also invite anyone who's not disabled, who's listening to this right now, who has questions about disability. I urge you to reach out to me because that's how we dismantle ableism right there by allowing you, giving you a safe space to ask quote unquote ignorant questions and working them through together. I love that. I feel like and that's where we have to leave you because th- that's that's it. Isn't I mean, isn't that it really? Wait, there was an and though. Was there more? And then, I mean, I also have a Patreon. So if you love the show so much and you want to give me money for it, you can give me, you can go to patreon.com slash disability after dark and pledge $1 a month up to $5 a month or more or a yearly amount if you're able to. Uh, but monthly works great too. And then what I do for that is I give you the show one day early 
and a sexy awkward shout out for me so <laughs> if i if i was to use lauren as the example i would say lauren friedman thank you so much for your pledge you've freed my manness by doing i don't know i come up with something really ridiculous in your last name and then i would just say thank you <laughs> so you get that and you get the show one day early and completely ad free so there's no ads or anything um and because i don't have like special patreon shows because i feel like paywalls are really like mm-hmm. exclusive and unfair so i don't have like you know how a lot of podcasts will do like special content only available on patreon yeah i don't do that because i just feel like i want to give to the community and mm-hmm. so the only thing you get is the show one day early completely ad free but that's great though cuz a lot of people would really appreciate that. So, I know I would too. So, awesome. I think that's awesome. Um Andrew, I guess I have one last question for you, which is what's next? What is next? Um well, super secret thing I can't really talk about, but that that I mean, that when I'm allowed to, I'm going to blast it everywhere. Well, I'm looking uh, forward to that. Yeah. And then just, you know, continuing the work I do, continuing talking about it, continuing making disability something we all have access to mm-hmm. um bumpin is going really well we're we're having pre-orders for the toy right now so if you want to get a toy um go to getbumpin.com. and if you're not disabled and you're like what can i do to help the disabled community get more of this you can also go on our website at getbumpin.com and you can give us a donation so we can actually fund a toy to a disabled person that doesn't have the income to buy one I love that. Andrew Gerza, you are a gem. You are a gem. I adore you. I I I want to come back on your show so much. I want to have you on my show every episode now. I just, there's so much more I want to talk about and more that I want to get to know and understand. So maybe we'll have to do a follow up. Yeah. Or, you you know, we can do, you know, we could do, we could do the follow up on my show. That part two on Andrew's show. People can listen to this now and then be like, what? They can go over to my show and they can listen to it then. Oh my God. I love it. Perfect. It's like a twins. We're twinning. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Well, Andrew, you are such a delight and I'm so honored to have had you on the show today and for you to have shared everything about your experience. So honestly, so candidly, I mean, whether or not Uh, it's for shits and giggles, that shit is real. I mean, the shit is real. That's kind of my motto with IBS, but (laughs) (laughs) it really is, isn't it? And I'm just, I'm so happy that you are part of this world and that you're showing up every day with hope and, 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 you know, looking at a new perspective on stuff and giving us fresh eyes. And like, that's what we need to shake it up. So. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I, I, you know, I knew of your show cause you emailed me and mm-hmm. I, I just read that you, the show won 2019 best podcaster for WeGo. Like that's amazing. It's- can you tell everyone where they can find you? They can go to andrewgerza.com or andrewgerza underscore on Instagram and andrewgerza underscore on the, on the Twitter. I love it. And where would they find Get Bumpin or find Bumpin again? They find Bumpin at www.getbumpin.com is the website. Uh, and they can pre-order a toy right now because they're going fast and it's a small run of toys. So please get one because uh, they need to be in the world. And also because disabled people need them um and then of course listen to disability after dark every saturday with new episodes sometimes bonus episodes it's a whole that whole show is a whole different thing it used to be just a sex show now it's an everything show i just love i love doing that well i whatever's going on in your brain i want more of it so more disability after dark please 
Amazing. I can do that for you. No problem. (laughs) Yay. Well, Andrew, I will let you go. Thank you so much for all of your time and energy today. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.